Welcome to episode 125 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined not really by anybody because I am handing over this episode soon to Courtney Nguyen, my co-host who is in China, in Beijing this week at the China Open after previously being in Wuhan. She will take over the show from there, interviewing a couple guests of her own, Carol Bouchard and Peter Chorba. You're going to like it. It's going to be cool. Here's Courtney. Take it away. Hello. Hello. I'm, yeah, I'm here in Beijing at the China Open. Alongside me is my good friend and hiking partner, Carol Bouchard. Carol is a, a French freelance journalist now, formerly yeah. with L'Equipe, uh, striking out on your own. Exactly. Doing the respect, I respect the hustle. Oh, thank you. I respect the hustle. Freedom is good. Freedom is very good. Freedom is very good. <laughs> Liberté, as they say in France. Oh, oh. She just uh, threw up a defiant, well. defiant fist pump. But um, but yeah, so Carol, I wanted to have you on the podcast, and you've been on the podcast before with Ben. Yeah. But uh, this is your first time in China. Yes, it is. Yeah, and you've been covering, uh, you're doing the Wuhan, Beijing, Shanghai triple. The whole trip. <laughs> so I guess like the first question is, is what have you kind of thought, first of all? You know, like, I, 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 it's always been my experience that, People who have never been to China, mm -hmm. they definitely think about China in a different way than people who've maybe even spent just a few days yeah. in China. Yeah. So um, kind of what surprised you, I guess, uh, first of all, what did you expect and what surprised you so far? What surprised me is, like, I didn't think the world was that crazy about tennis. I knew that, like, tournaments, business, yes, they were crazy about tennis, but I didn't think the people were crazy about mm -hmm. tennis. And actually, they are. Yeah. They are. They know everybody. They know even the top 40 players, the top 50 players, men and women. Yeah. And so we always talk about, okay, the stadium are not full of people, but I think they want to come. If you take Wuhan, just mm -hmm. they can't come because there's no public transport for now. Yeah. So you drive or you don't go. Yeah. But Beijing, I mean, the fans are just crazy. They're, signing, they're, asking, they're asking for sign for autographs, for everything. They're waiting at hotels, I mean, yeah. early in the morning or late <laughs> at night. And But they're really nice about it. They're yeah. not like talkery or anything. They're really respectful, but they, they just love the guys. And you think they, they can follow the sport, even with the, the restrictions, yeah. the firewall, everything. They, they know the sport. They really do. I mean, you do get a sense. Sometimes I talk to... Because one thing that you do notice in China is that um, everybody that's around tennis is young. Yeah. Right? Like that's all right. the people who are the fans mm. are fairly young, yeah. like kind of yeah. college age and younger. New you also have, yeah, it's the younger generation. It's the generation that grew up with Li Na. They grew up with the Beijing Olympics mm. as being something. So their exposure is, is really through that. And I think that you have seen how social media impacts it because some of the fans here in China I'll talk to and they talk about the sport in the same way kind of with the same language and same yeah. knowledge as we do, which Completely. makes me think, like, are you accessing <laughs> Twitter and, like, tennis yeah. forum and, yeah. like, all of these they other their things? They own ways. They really do. And, and the other thing, they're, for as far as I've seen, they're not gender biased. Mm, that's a very good point. Like, they're also not biased yeah. between singles and doubles. Nope. They, they think doubles to, is exactly. just as important they love as singles. The sport. Yeah. They don't care if it's a woman who plays, if it's a guy who plays, if it's a two in, on a court or... 
they just love the sport and it's it's like a show they really understood the, inter the entertainment value of it and i think they respect the athletes also they don't see them often so when they come mm -hmm. it's like rock stars yeah for but sure for now, that's been really interesting yeah no i mean it's it's always uh yeah it's it's always curious i mean like what has maybe maybe that you've seen so far that you do think is like a challenge or maybe you know um, a tougher situation for tennis uh, here I think oh, that's a tough one. Uh, let's say the organization, but that's normal because they don't know everything. Um, they they yeah, can shout. A... They can shout in the middle of a point. Yeah, yeah. They can clap. Well, there was clap, that whole, just, you but, know, the whole debacle in Wuhan with yeah. um, with Petkovic saying that yeah. you know, kind of mutter, not muttering. I mean, she said to the umpire, you know, the English <laughs> behave better yeah. than this. And while it, she should have never said that, it was a viral moment, and she's mm. going to probably get a lot of heat from yeah. it. If you were in Wuhan and you were out there watching matches, you did see a lot of movement during the points <laughs> yeah, in the yeah, lower ball. Yeah, because they just know? don't know. I think I think they just don't know they how, just how don't it works. Know. Yeah, but that's the funny thing. I mean, all all of this is new for them, so it's like Christmas. Yeah. It's like new eyes on it. So that's that's beautiful in a way. And I think there's not a lot of deep issues. It's like small stuff like yeah. for the media thing. Like, organizing better the press conferences, yeah. the announcements, but they're trying their best. And yeah. I think you can't be mad at people who are genuinely trying their best. Yeah. And they say, it's going to get better and better. And you ask the players, like I did, like Caroline Garcia, she said, no one year who tells them, this is wrong, this is not going up, it's not going okay. You can be sure that the next time yeah. it's going to be fixed. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of tournaments or <laughs> countries so can say the same. <laughs> no, it's totally true. I mean, we talk about, you know, Ben and I talk about every year about Rome. Uh, <laughs> don't start me on this topic. Oh my know, God! Don't start me on this Carol. topic. Uh, but you know, yeah. and, and uh, quite a few other tournaments where you know they've had in in the West, you know, in mm -hmm. Europe or in uh, the States, where you know they've had the tournament for so long. They have a tradition of yeah. tennis. It's a profitable tournament, Completely. but behind the scenes. Completely. People aren't trying. Yeah. There are problems that have been existing, mm. major problems for years yeah. that don't get fixed. And whereas you come here and, yeah, it, I mean, as you mentioned, like, things aren't perfect. No, you know, because better. this is all a very foreign mm. system to them. Mm. Like, Carol and I were laughing about it in Wuhan, you know, that, that to us, obviously, we travel a lot. We've been covering tennis. We know how... The press conference system <laughs> works. We know how, you know, you come in, you uh, tell WTA uh, who you want to talk exactly. to, and they work through it. They then eventually tell you when they that person... They give you the time? Yeah. They give them all on this, the and, and, and the local Chinese journalists could not understand. They thought, at the morning, you need to tell me what time yeah. Maria Sharapova is doing a press conference. Yeah. Now, to us, we're like, what that's... Well, like, we kind of look at it, we're like, no, but you, you don't understand, that can't happen. Yeah. But from their eyes, they're like, no, you don't understand, I don't understand how it can't happen. Exactly. You know, so they, they, exactly. in terms of, like, looking at it with new yeah. eyes, yeah. that's what it, it, but, it is like. But they're genuine, like, if, if, you tell, if you explain them, this is not the way that you should be doing this, they understand. Yeah. And they can, and they have the resources and the manpower I mean, to fix the things. facilities, oh I mean, God. I'm sorry, Wuhan Stadium... Hello. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. It's a mix of the nice so of skeptical too, but and it the was O2 so nice. Arena. Oh, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah. No, it's it's, it's, it's it, they they really did a yeah. great job. I actually really when we were sitting there, uh we were watching uh we were at the opening ceremony for mm. the new stadium in Wuhan, which is I think maybe the biggest or second biggest stadium tennis stadium in China. Oh, possibly, now it's yeah. like 15,000 yeah, seats. Yeah. And uh, the, it has a retractable roof and the roof was closed before the opening mm. of the, the, the stadium. 
and I was sitting there, I was like, I kind of want this to be an indoor tournament, like, because it looked really cool, really like all of the, uh, the graphics and, and everything, it was neat. And they have indoor school too, so I yeah. mean, at some point they could, they could say, oh, why not getting the Masters here, oh, yeah. the ATP finals or WTA finals, sorry, <laughs> 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 why not getting a Master one time, I mean, they, they can everything, I mean, the only issue is that. It's the end of the season. Yeah. Everybody's tired. Yeah. We know that. It's a long trip. Most of the top players are from Europe. So, But the fun thing is that I'm French. French <laughs> love to wine. So <laughs> you like, lo you like you wine and you love the wine. Exactly. <laughs> Not a single one of my French players is complaining. That's about interesting. You know, are players complaining about mm. being in Asia or are they mm. complaining about playing on, you know, October yeah. 6th, yeah. Right? Mm. which are two kind of different things. Completely. But... Um, yeah, I mean, so let's talk about the fatigue issue a little bit because it's it's something that has obviously come up. Uh, we were in Wuhan, now we're in Beijing. I'm sure when you go to Shanghai, it'll be issues. Bercy would be the same. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this section of the season should. The, do you think the season should be shorter? Like, what's your what's your kind of take on it? I changed my opinion a lot <laughs> on this topic since few years. I think at some point it was too much, but at the same time. There are two tours, top 30, top 40, top, they need tournaments. Yeah. They need the points, they need the money. So for them, who don't go to the finals every week, it's fine. Yeah. The top players winning semi-final finals every week, okay, it's tough. But they don't play as many tournaments as the other ones. And in the winter, we all know that they love playing exhibitions. Okay, it's not the same fatigue, but you still have to travel. Yeah. So I don't think it should be, sh I think for now it's okay. They've made efforts already. They've shortened what they could. Yeah. Now you, um, what do you want to take out? You're yeah. going to take out the Master 1000? You're going to take out the, ma the ATP 250? Mm -hmm. You're going to kill the basis of... Yeah. I think the, for me the skill now is fine. Now it's about the players yeah. to make decisions. Yeah. Should I play this? Should I rest? Should I train instead? So yes, you're going to cut on money. Cut at some point, yeah. but maybe you're, you're going to play your career for 10 years, more, and not five. Yeah. So I think now it's about them making strong decisions and stick to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I fall under the same kind of camp. I, I, I keep looking at the WTA schedule. I know there has been a lot of discussion recently. I think Peter Bodo wrote an article for ESPN.com discussing and maybe calling for a, a shortening of the WTA season, or at least a reschedule a closer look at the schedule that yeah. maybe things could be moved around in the schedule which maybe they can be i'd have to look at it a little bit closer they've changed the roadmap like what three years ago yeah years 2009 they're finishing their season in october yeah so it, it beginning be of better? october yeah I, I, closing after the us closing after the us yeah open? exactly i i don't know exactly what can be done but that's the problem you know i mean it's, it's it, you identify precisely the issue which is top players can have who have the most control yeah. Arg arguably I mean they have the least control insofar as they have mandatory yeah they have tournaments they have to play um, in order because there are commitments you have mm -hmm. to make to the tournaments but at the same time they also could play you know those 14 tournaments and nothing more exactly and they don't have exactly. to play anymore and if exactly. you build up the points I mean Serena mm -hmm. clinched year-end number one yeah. early she's played like 14 yeah. tournaments this year you know and what is more tiring is it playing or is it what all that comes around it, mm. like they have obligation for media, they have obligation for sponsors, yeah. there are a lot of demands from fans, because I talk to lesser known players, like Alison Van Nijvang, for mm -hmm. example, she's fine, she's not tired, yeah. she wants to play, she's like, I'm, she has two or three tournaments more, she could play two months more, because she hasn't been in second week of yeah. Grand Slam, the four Grand Slam, she hasn't been winning three or four matches and mandatory, she did a, a, a good season, a top 50 season, yeah. 
with a normal, she's not tired. She yeah. wants to play it. Well, the Belinda Benchich said the exact same thing. I thought that actually, surprisingly, mm. the 18-year-old Swiss was had a very good perspective on scheduling, which is it doesn't actually matter. If you look at the column on the WTA website that says the number of tournaments, mm. that is not an indicator as to how heavy you play. Because if you play 22 tournaments, but you lose the first round of all yeah. 22, you've played 22 yeah. matches in the year. Completely. You're clearly not tired, yeah. right? Yeah. But um, it's about winning matches. And oh, yeah. if you are winning matches like Bencic did this year, yeah. which maybe she didn't expect to do, yeah. she says, okay, yes, at the end of the year, and she is tired. And mm -hmm. you know, she just pulled out of the tournament today, the China Open with a, with a wrist, a hand injury. But if she said, you know, next year I have to I have to look at it. I have to, you know, adjust my schedule and assume that I'm going to win. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's the, the thing, right? You have thing. to assume you're going to win. This is like playing the week. I mean, it's like the week playing the week before a Grand Slam. Yeah. If you're trusting your abilities, you're not playing the week before the yeah. Grand Slam because you think, okay, I can win this. I can be. I need to preserve myself. Yeah. If you're doubting a little bit, you want to. You're playing the week before. So yeah. It's always. It's a tough choice. It I is. mean, it's a bet. Yeah, but at the end of the day, it's a bet that you're making, which means that you yeah. make you take yeah. responsibility if the decision is wrong, right? Yeah. Like not like, oh, there's something wrong with the system. It's mm -hmm. like I think, on the whole, I, I don't know. I mean, I I keep thinking about. It. I mean, I'm the first to try and like figure out like, is there a better way to do scheduling and stuff like that? And I'm just not entirely. Mm sure that there's yeah. a better way. I mean, if anything, honestly, yeah. the best way would be to end, to, to go from the China Open straight into the year-end championships and skip the indoor tournaments back in Europe. Don't make the players fly back there and then fly back to Singapore. Mm. But that, if that's the case, then uh, I don't think the Europeans would be too happy about that. No, I'm from Europe, team Europe from the <laughs> I mean, I wonder how much part of this fatigue is physical fatigue and how much is mental fatigue yeah. which is understand when you win a lot of matches you're not that tired you're tired but you're happy tired yeah. you see if you lose if you have the complicated you can't wait for it to be over yeah. like I'm sure Eugenie Bouchard or let's say Maria Sharapova okay 2015 you know what bye bye yeah. that's different but that's, a, that's a, I think for this this is a personal issue some players are going to be fine others are going to struggle and I think Vazniaki or Advanska some seasons were fine at the end of the season yeah. It depends also if you have confidence, if you have been winning a lot, if it has been complicated. So are you going to change the whole schedule for like... Yeah. I mean, if ending and knocked ATP is way worse. I'm not comfortable with the ATP finishing, let's say, yes. uh, mid-November, even if they try to shorten up and, and starting end of December and they're like one month. Yeah. But WT ending in October... I mean, yeah. look at the, so the ATP schedule and yeah. say that it should be ending when it is. Completely. That's a big, this is kind of like what yeah. I think both tours were really concerned about with respect to the IPTL. To the extent that it succeeds and it's able to put out yeah. the money. I mean, some of the numbers that, that uh, Carol was telling me about the French players absolutely blew my mind how much they were getting last year. Yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah. well, yeah, if you can pick up an easy mid to high six figures, let alone seven figures, to go play a few exhibition matches in uh, Asia, of course you're in favor of shortening the schedule yeah. because you want to be able to play more of, of those. And it's easier money mm -hmm. and it's guaranteed mm -hmm. money as opposed to playing tournaments that isn't yeah. guaranteed money. So, so we're back at things that is personal choices. Yeah, you is. do your choices and then you assume them. So I'd, for me, the roadmap is okay, honestly. And you also have to think about, it's fine thinking about player safety, of course. Of course. As comes first. Yep. But thinking about the directors of tournaments, yes. I mean, you you cut tournaments, you cut money for the ATP, you cut money for the for the WTA, you kill like the ATP to to 
50. Mm -hmm. They're struggling like yeah. crazy because the draws are not as good as they should be. Yeah. So it's a whole ecosystem. It's not only about top players wanting to play longer or to play less. Or is they're not alone in this world. It's an ecosystem. You're talking about just basic things of jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, these tournaments, once you, once you kill them, you kill like, yeah. you know, a good, you know, 50 to 100 jobs, depending on the size yeah. of the tournament mm. in that particular city, yeah. which is also an impact. Mm. You know, it's something to consider. I think maybe so. the thing they could change would be the mandatory situation mm. and the thing about the zero when you... The zero pointer maybe, if you miss or something. Maybe this, you yeah. can maybe go flexible on this, but I think, honestly, I'm not sure that's a huge issue here. No, I don't think so. I mean... It, it, yeah, it's complicated. There's, I mean, whenever you talk about tournament yeah. scheduling and how tournaments are done, are like it's just a lot of moving every parts. Every season we're having the same so comment. I remember Bercy, Bercy every season, like, oh, should we change Bercy? Put it in February. Put in the South American tour before mm -hmm. because they're not coming. They're not coming because the Masters mm -hmm. is coming and they want to raise themselves because they're tired and they know there's a big event coming. So you can turn it all over you want. You will always find somebody who say. Yeah. I can't. And in a lot of ways, I mean, you can, I, I think that it's it's incorrect to compare the China Open, which is the, the last pr premier mandatory event of the season for the WTA, mm -hmm. with, like, the China Open for the ATP. Oh, and then the you look one. at, like, the withdrawals yeah. and the numbers, no, and you're like, oh, it's so heavy to the WTA, something's not wrong with WTA. Compare withdrawals and retirements from Bercy, mm. or even yeah. Shanghai, yeah. which doesn't always get the top four. Exactly. Um, yeah, you compare true. it to that's those true. tournaments. Yeah. You know, compare it to the ma the end of season Masters mm. tournaments, where players, the top players in particular, the ones yeah. that are the players you want here, like the Maria Sharapovas, the Serena Williamses, Simona Halep, Petra Kvitova, all those players. You look at 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 them thinking about Singapore. Completely. Right. As a, and same with the guys. Like Completely. they're by the time they get to Bercy, they're like, Singapore's why should I be O2. here? Like I'm, I'm and, going to the O2. And one year doesn't make a rule. I mean. Yeah. Last year, Serena played Wuhan, Maria yeah. Sharapova played Wuhan, Petra was still there in Beijing. I mean, it's not, the, it's not Safarova's fault if she got a virus. It's not Sharapova's fault if she, her body is falling apart this yeah. season. Uh, Serena, it's yeah. another issue. It's not the roadmap's fault that Petra got it's, mono. It's, yeah, you know, you know it's so like, maybe <laughs> next season they will all be there comp in complete shape and fighting for the titles. You never know. So what if you cut some tournaments that could end being amazing? Yeah. Yeah, an opportunity for growth. Yeah. And the yeah. younger girls, they're coming, they need matches, they need tournaments. I'd think Madison Keys, Eugenie Bouchard, if she wasn't. Yeah. They're fine playing. Yeah. They're not winning every title of yeah. every week of the season. So. No, but they want matches and they yeah. want the experience and all I'm that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. So um, the other day, Carol and I woke up at 5 a.m., <gasps> hopped on a bus. The Great Wall Expedition. Exactly, and we made our way up to the Great Wall of China and... It was harrowing at times because <laughs> Carol and I, we were in a car of four other guys and it was us two of the girls. Yep. Three of those guys decided to do the, take the lift up to the top of the thing and then like toboggan down. Carol and I were like, no, we're going to do it old school style out of warriors. respect for the builders yeah. and the respect for the warriors and the men who have stood on this watchtower to stand guard over this country and we're going to walk. <laughs> and it seemed walk. like a really bad idea for a while. <laughs> Alf in the middle of the talk, like, mm, maybe the cable car was, it was good. But then it was like almost like we got, like, so basically to get up to the wall, you have to, I don't know how many, I, I wish I had a Fitbit. I, I need to know how many hundreds, I'm sure, hundreds, I'm sure of, hundreds oh, of stairs. Easily done. hundreds of stairs. Each time you think, okay, this is the last portion, last section. Nope, two more. 
like 40 minutes of nonstop oh stairs. Yeah. Like that's basically what it was. Yeah. Um, and I think that like if I if I I, I personally kept looking over at Carol and saying. <laughs> And thinking in my head, if she doesn't want to go, I don't want to. I'll be like, no, it's totally fine. Let's turn back. And uh, but neither of us ever did. Nope. And we got to the top. True, true. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful, spectacular. Yeah. If you have the occasion, just do it. I mean, wow. I'm not a huge wow nature fantastic person. <laughs> so if I'm amazed by something <laughs> in the nature, it's worth it. It is a wonder of the world. Oh, completely. So you know, yeah. it's it's. I, and I agree. I'm not a morning person. I, I don't am. wake up for anything. Not even work. <laughs> um, but but waking up and, and doing that trip was yeah. was pretty darn good. cool. Yeah, it was that it was good. really neat. China, yeah. China's been China's been good. This is my this is my second year doing the Wuhan Beijing double. Uh, third year in China because I did Shanghai one year. Um, but yeah, I mean things keep. I see the improvement. I see the criticism as well. But I think. But I, I guess what I've always thought is just like when you look and. You're seeing like empty stadiums sometimes, or you're seeing, you know, issues that yeah. you see on TV. Weirdly, which, which when are issues. which are issues, mm. but when you're on site, you kind of yeah. don't see them. I don't know because, like, here at the China Open, for example, the grounds are actually packed. People are coming here. Yeah, it's kind of it's like Indian Wells or yeah. Madrid. You because, know, yeah, it's when it's empty on the center yeah. courts, but the outer Completely. courts are actually quite and full. It's a, it's a great city. It's a big city. And they are used to have this tournament, so I think Wuhan is, a, is still new to, yeah, to editions. Very new. I think next year when they like get the tramway, we'll see. If nobody is still coming, right. we'll talk about this again. But there's no reason why. I mean, they just have to to get into it. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the, you know, the most the craziest stat that I heard when I was in Wuhan uh, that really kind of put everything into perspective to me was. Yeah, Wuhan is a population of like 10 to 12 million, which is about half of what Australia mm -hmm. is, all of Australia. Crazy. So, like, when you talk about a 15,000-seat stadium, yeah. Yeah, it's not a lot. Nope. You're talking nope. about a 10 million, a city of 10 million yeah. to fill a 15,000-person stadium. That's crazy. That's, com that's somewhat doable. You just have to convince the people mm -hmm. that it's worth it, that it's worth buying the ticket, that it's worth making the trip. And yeah. one thing also to remember, and, and this is something that always um, – is clear when we're here for the tennis because usually the China Open falls during the national holiday, yeah. which is a one-week uh, national holiday in China. Mm. And the Chinese don't have holidays. They work, like, nonstop, and, and it's very rare. Mm. So, you know, with Wuhan being the week before the national holiday, yeah, they're not, you know, no, the luxury of taking days, a day no, off to no. go watch tennis, that's just, like, not completely. a reality here. Mm, so it's a little bit different. And then Beijing also benefits from the yeah. fact that it, there's a lot of students here, mm. like university students, and so they have the time. Mm. They have the day mm. to come down. So it's it's different. Yeah. But I think Mladenovic made an interesting point to me. She said, I'm just, I like here. It's facilities are amazing. The quality is great. I'm just scared that we're going to spend half of our season in Asia, because the, the so much more money and mm, yeah. So at some point, maybe the how do you say that in English? The center of gravity yeah. of shifts could shift, and that is another issue. Yeah. Because tradition wise, and maybe the tennis culture is more present in Europe, but Europe tournaments have to. Working hard. Well, look, I mean, like, I think that uh, from an American perspective, mm. I'm a big fan of competition. I think yeah, competition, competition is, is an important thing. Agreed. So, to the extent that, you know, now Agreed. 
European tournaments are in particular, I mean, because they were starting to feel the crunch even just because of Indian Wells mm. and everything that Indian Wells was doing as a master's yeah. tournament and really outshining all the other, you know, master's tournaments, yeah. especially in Europe, you know, that's going to put pressure on Europe to step it up and instead of just like, you know, arguing to yeah. just keep the status quo, mm-hmm. you know. So the same thing, if, if the prize money is here, if the, if the, yeah. the tournament is able to develop, mm, deliver an experience true. to the players that they enjoy, then, you know, that puts mm. pressure on the other tournaments to, to up yeah. the ante as well. And also on the ATP and the WTA, like maybe thinking sometimes, like when you have TV rights to sell, mm. okay, there's more, there's more money here, but for now we are making the other choice, so we keep a balance. Yeah. So right, exactly. See. To balance the traditions versus, like, yeah, you know, expansion and things like that. competition is well. I'm just Indian Wells, I mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and that's why we've coached their CEO yeah, and we've taken well it done the uh, for the WTA. One. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll be interested to see what, uh, obviously referring to the hiring of or the naming mm-hmm. of Steve Simon, who was the tournament director at Indian Wells, um, as the new CEO of the WTA, replacing Stacey Allister. So... Uh, I'm excited for it just because you wouldn't, you can't find anybody in tennis that has a bad word to say about Steve Simon. That's true. He knows how to, he knows how to run, run a ship. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So we'll see about that. That's still surprising to, to be talking about the replacement of Stacey Edison, like yeah. So in chi- at the China as Open, as especially. And we saw in the U.S. Open, and she was still so into it. So mm-hmm. no, that's. Yeah, it's Surprising. definitely changed. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a, a, a shifting of gears, a very fast shifting of gears. I'm French, no change is frightening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm Courtney and change is yeah. frightening. So, you know, it works out okay. But uh, but all in all, Carol, the good, like, what what's the biggest takeaway that you take away from, from, from this? I mean, you obviously still have Shanghai, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but what's the biggest takeaway so far of your trip? I think that's, that is that tennis has hasn't still reached its limit mm. in the world because you see what well, Asia is crazy about tennis, you see oh, Dubai, Doha, everybody is crazy about tennis, you see with the IPTL that India is also crazy about tennis, the potential is still huge. Yeah. And for all the generations that are going to come after, or famous Big Four, or famous Irina and Sharapova and, and so on, girls and guys just keep moving your ass because they've done a ter- terrific job promoting their sport, and that's because of them that are going to win so much money yeah. all over the world for, for maybe the next two or three decades to come. So this is not a legacy that will just live by itself. Yeah. You have to it, work you for have it. You have to work. They yeah. work pretty hard, so don't mess up. Love it, love it. Well, thank you very much, Carol Bouchard. <laughs> I know it's late. No, I know that fine. you're bit, you, you've been tired waiting for Mr. My Djokovic French to accent finish. My all over the place. <laughs> thank Not at all. Sorry, by advance. Not at all. Okay, very cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. I am here in this lovely and incredibly large hotel room with uh, Peter Chorba, who is the senior... Manager of Business Development. I flipped those, haven't I? You did, but I that's did. okay. Yeah. Uh, senior Business Development Manager. There you go. Yeah, at the China Open. Um, and uh, I met Pete through Twitter uh, a few years ago, but actually met him last year. Yes. Right here at the China Open. And we've been good buddies ever since. Just uh, <laughs> Even though I only see you for a few days. Story in, um, in terms of how he got into tennis, how he's found himself here in Beijing. Um, and working for the China Open and, and a lot of different insights into what that is like, especially as everybody knows, whenever I come to China, I try to get a little bit of a feel about what uh, what's going on with the sport here. What is the what are the opportunities? What are the 
the uh, you know the, the the issues that come up with with growing the sport here because it is something that um, uh, at least in my opinion is is super important for for the development of tennis and uh, the future of the game. So what is going on in China does matter aside from the tournaments and things like that. So I wanted to get Pete onto the podcast to kind of talk about all that. And also just to kind of give insight into what it's like being an American in Beijing. But yeah, we'll start off just basically, Pete, like, how the heck are you, as an American, who went to college in America, grew up in America, in Beijing, and fluent in Mandarin? Explain Uh, to me this. (laughs) Explain it. Uh, It's been a a long and interesting journey, for sure. And there are definitely times, uh, even just hanging around the venue, where I think, oh, how did I even get here? Uh, it definitely was wasn't part of the plan. Um, you know, I grew up being a huge tennis fan. I've been playing ten- tennis since I was five years old. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Trenton, New Jersey. Yeah, heard um, of it. <laughs> <laughs> the great state of New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, and so growing up there, um, my parents they built a uh, basketball court on the side of the house. Um, and what ended up happening is my brothers and my sister and I we didn't end up playing basketball a lot, but I would take a tennis racket and hit against the side of our house. And the side of the house had kind of had this kind of siding on it. So it's not level. It's not flat. So I would hit it and the ball would just bounce up. <laughs> it would it would sometimes not bounce at all, right? So I, I used to do that for hours, just hours. So I've always been a huge tennis fan, and I always wanted to, you know, work in tennis or dream of it. But, um, you know, once I got to college, I thought of being um, working maybe for a congressman or doing public policy. That's what I initially thought, but um, in college... We all think we're going into public policy when we go to college. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's true. So that's what I thought, and then at, in college I had to take a language, and I chose Chinese, and I didn't think much about it. Um, just wanted to fulfill the requirement, but I ended up really enjoying it, and so after taking as many classes as I, I could and added a Chinese studies major to political science, then I moved to China shortly after that, uh, right after graduating. So I've been here pretty much the whole time. I've lived in different Chinese cities, uh, but for the last five years I've been in Beijing, and uh, for nearly that whole time I've been working for the China Open. That is very cool. I mean, like, so, so you graduate from college. Where did you go to school? Drew University. Drew University. So you graduate from college, you have this dual degree in yes. Chinese studies and, and, uh, and poli-sci, and you decide to move to China. So do you remember kind of what your initial thoughts were? Because, you know, like I took German, mm-hmm. which is, you know, basically Chinese, and <laughs> in college, and, you know, I had my ideas about what Germany was, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, no matter how much I learned about it, or read about it, or felt I knew about the country, and its history, and its people, when I stepped off the plane in Munich for the first time, uh, having visited it, I was like, oh, this is a little bit different than maybe what I thought mm-hmm. it was in my mind. So, like, what were your kind of initial impressions of China, if you can recall, like, when you, when you got off the plane? Sure. I think China is a, um, a big assault on all of the senses. <laughs> it's just uh, the flavors of all the food and the, the smells and just the sights and just the constant amount of people coming towards you. So that can be quite jarring at first. Um, thankfully, when I was in college, we did, like, a um, sort of study abroad type of thing where... You took a class about some aspect of Chinese culture, and then for three weeks you traveled around China. So we were at, uh, the first time I came to China was 
like almost like a tour group with mm-hmm. my fellow classmates. So, you know, we got to see a lot of things, but it was still in a very controlled environment. So I think the big difference was when I actually moved here by myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I graduated college. Uh, I was 21 years old and living on my own in a, in a foreign country. That was where the big shock came. So, right. but um, I think uh, it really forced me to grow up and to really mature very quickly. And, uh, to really learn how to improve my Chinese level so I can do things by myself. And so right. uh, I'm naturally a very independent person. And so that's what helped me improve my Chinese was just figuring it out, just sitting down and just really focusing on how to get things done. So I think that has served me uh, well so far. No, I, w- I would think so. I mean, you're now in, you're now living in Beijing, which is a pretty, you know, mega cosmopol- like cosmopolitan city. There's a lot of expats i mean especially here i mean coming from wuhan uh covering the wuhan open to beijing i'm always kind of taken aback by how many more people speak english in beijing which is still not a ton Hmm. but like you know the kids that work at the china open are are pretty conversant like even when i i'm always trying to be mindful to actually speak in complete sentences not use slang or idioms you know like to really keep things simple but even when i catch myself saying something that I wouldn't think that somebody would understand. They're like, oh, yeah, no, we get it. I'm like, okay, perfect. Um, but uh, but being around Beijing, how much do you still get the whole, like, double take when you go to a restaurant or whatever and you can speak Mandarin and you can, you know, order and be kind of a complete, you know, embedded uh, person here? Uh, I think it's a very liberating feeling, and I think um, it's always so satisfying to be able to accomplish things by myself. Um, and not to depend on others. And um, I, I think that, um, you know, sometimes I am surprised at, my, at myself. <laughs> so, that sounds really... Sounds really sometimes I'm impressed by myself. <laughs> Gosh, no, you sound but, just like a tennis no, player. No, <laughs> but I think this is something I, I often talk about with my um, uh, friends that live here, whether they be from the U.S. or from uh, the U.K. or from France, wherever they're from, like... You have to give yourself credit for living in a, in a place like this that is constantly changing and that at times can be quite challenging, um, and especially uh, dealing with the, uh, such a, a language that is so different from your yeah. own. So, you know, you sort of have to change the way that you think. And so you can be caught up in just going to work and coming home and get caught up in that, that you don't really take the time to take a deep breath and to look around and say like, oh, wow, I'm in, I'm in the capital city of the second largest economy in the world. And, right. and just, um, so something I, I've talked about with a lot of the people I know here. Yeah. And just such a dynamic, interesting place for sure. No, I can definitely, I can definitely get the sense of that every time that I come to Beijing. And I always, I always say like there, you know, I haven't gone to many cities in China, but like Beijing is always still my favorite. Like, you know, even like going to Shanghai, which Everybody seems to really love, like mm-hmm. most people really like Shanghai and say it's like their favorite city in China. I kind of just think that it's like a more Chinese version of Hong Kong, which and I don't really love Hong Kong, so it doesn't really work for me. But Beijing, it just feels like, I don't know, it's like an onion. Like you just feel like you can just keep like pulling away layers and layers yeah. and layers. It's totally true. And I mean, some of the best restaurants in Beijing are not restaurants that you can see from the street. You have to, you know, enter inside or it might be down a hutong or it, it's not quite on the surface. So I think Beijing has a lot of character and, um, I've lived in Shanghai and I've lived here and I, I do find that the experiences are quite different mm-hmm. and, and they, and both places have their, you know, pluses and minuses. But for me, I, I really 
found almost like a second home here. Yeah. And it just feels very comfortable. And I think Beijing people are just such interesting characters. <laughs> and it's just, there is just always something new uh, every day. Um, like the other day, I, I went to my tailor uh, who operates a small shop outside my grocery, the grocery store I go to. And then I was carrying two bottles of water, um, like large jugs. And then I, I, I was picking up some shirts from her and then she goes, what are you doing with those water bottles? And I said, oh, I'm going to drink them. And then she goes, oh, I thought you were going to use them to lift weights. And I was like, <laughs> I said to her, I'm like, I said to her, uh, no, I don't think so. And she go, and then she says, I think you should do that though. Cause I think, I think you could be like more muscular and I think that would help you. And I said, okay, thank, thank you, like, thank you very much. It, it's just something I was totally unexpected. And like, well, and this... that's, you know, I, I was telling you the story the other night. I mean, that's, that's like, you would tell that story to like an American and they'd be like, that is so rude or a Brit. Like, I can't believe she said that. <laughs> but like, you know, I had a similar experience at the Chinese consulate where the, the lady who was working the, the, the window, like t- looked at my you know, passport photo and was like, you look fat without your glasses. <laughs> and like, I didn't even think twice about it. Cause obviously I'm Asian and you know, like I've grown up in this kind of Asian society where like your aunties like do that all the time. Like they're like, she looks fat. Like she should lose weight. And it's not like <laughs> yeah. a mean thing. It's just a statement of fact. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you, I'm sure that in that moment, she was actually a quite nice moment. Like it was sure. a personal moment with her. It was. She was looking out for you. Yeah. And I don't really know her name and we don't have those type of conversations, but, uh, it, it's just, I think Beijing people have such great, strong personalities and mm. just very direct, very honest. And I think, um, I've really appreciated that being here and I, I, I've, you know, that some of the best, best Chinese friends here yeah. and some of my coworkers, they're, they're so great. So I think, um, I think Beijing has been a, a great place for me to be. So speaking of coworkers, yes. let's talk about the China Open. Let's do it. So, so how did you get this, this gig at the China Open and what, and, and tell people like what exactly it is that you do for the tournament? Sure. So um, I was here uh, teaching English at the time. Um, I'm a, tr- a trained teacher. Uh, so I, I did that for a few months. And it's just very typical Beijing where things happen so fast. And uh, friends of friends of friends can link together mm. so easily. So like an actual LinkedIn network and not like a fake LinkedIn network that yes. we have in the States. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a real one. This is actually networking. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, it just happened where I met some people, some friends, and I just mentioned that I love tennis and I would love to find people to play with. And then a friend of a friend uh, contacted me and said, I have this job offer that I got in my email box, but you're the only person I know that really is a super tennis fan. So like, I'll just pass it on to you. And it was just saying that, um, the China open was looking for someone interested in tennis, native English speaker to help them with doing business development. And so I, uh, played tennis with my boss. That was the first <laughs> kind of nice. meeting. And then after my future boss, I should say, and then, uh, we played tennis and then, you know, all of a sudden there was a job offer, you know, it was, it was just that kind of quick, but they were looking for somebody who had, had interest and knowledge about tennis, but, and could help them sort of be a a bridge between some international sponsors and the event they're trying to hold here. So for, for the past five years, I've, I've been playing that role. So 
I'm in charge of some international sponsors accounts and then uh, part of my job is finding those sponsors so mm-hmm. uh, I'd say about eight months out of the year we're looking for sponsors and then about four the other four months we're doing client services as we call it just sort of executing the benefits and trying to make sure that everything goes to plan because as you've seen the China mm-hmm. Open is just a huge event it's massive. so and a yeah. lot of big time sponsors not a lot of small it's like the big dogs. Yeah, I, I mean, the other day there were four player activities right in a row that that just had to handle, and so you just have to, um, yeah, it's it's quite busy. With and we have we have forty two sponsors, so uh, you know I have my own chunk of sponsors. My other coworkers have their chunk, and then we kind of work together to to provide the best services that we can and make sure that our sponsors are happy with with what we've promised we would deliver, mm-hmm. and then also um, try to get. Uh, everybody on the same page so that they can provide what they do so well to contribute to our tournament. I mm-hmm. think that's what we try to do with our sponsorships is try to find partners who can um, contribute their their own specialties and then we can provide our own specialties and we have like a good collaboration. I mean like so uh, we had uh, an interview with Ann Worcester a couple of weeks ago, uh, tournament director at the Connecticut Open. And um, she was kind of talking about what it was like to be a tournament director at a tournament and she made it a point to say, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but running a tournament is a year-long project. That it's not like sometimes people think, oh, it's a tournament and, you know, you get hired maybe two or three or four months in advance and then you go execute and then you pack up the tent and you come back in, in you know, another eight months. And that's not the case. So in the course of a year, because you work for the tournament and it's a full-time job throughout the entire the entire year. So... Like, what is for you kind of the most stressful time of the year? Is it during the tournament? Is it, you know, the few weeks before? Is it when you're signing sponsors? Like, when is kind of, I guess, the quote-unquote busiest time of the year? I just kind of want to give people a feel for what it's like to work for a tournament full-time. Yeah, for me, it's uh, around July, August, uh, Mm -hmm. because the tournament is at the end of September, uh, early October, and that's the most stressful time when we're trying to get the sponsors who already have uh, agreements get their benefits started but then there might be some late comers where you're trying to secure the deal Mm. trying to sign get that contract signed by the certain deadline ideally we'd like sponsors to have the agreement signed as early as possible so that we can really give them the full media promotion that we do starting in you know april or may so there have been cases where sponsors have come on a bit later so then you're dealing with uh, older sponsors uh get making sure they're on track with what they need to provide us and what we need to provide them and then you've got some a, a contract coming in that you need to edit mm-hmm. you've you've got to send you know the specs for the souvenir program advertisement <laughs> to right. them and you've got to make sure that you've got their most updated logo so you've got um a lot of things on on your plate and you have to also sort of carp compartmentalize them because you've got a group of sponsors and they're each completely different so you really need to be able to realize okay where is corona right now or where is rolex right now in in terms of the progress of of their benefits so that's something um quite challenging so during that time july august is is when we are quite busy during the tournament itself, um, we're quite busy handling like player activities, for example, right. and if like sudden problems arise, but it's almost like um, you've sort of set the foundation in the weeks and months before, 
And so once the tournament is going on, it's sort of like running as a machine. And so like, you know, if you haven't done your homework and you haven't uh, done all the hard work earlier, then the more problems will arise during the tournament. Um, So I think there are times during the event where I am very, very busy, Mm -hmm. but then there are other times when things are running quite smoothly. And so there are quite a a few hours where, you know, I'm just, my phone's not ringing. (laughs) So I just sort of assume that everything is going okay. And then uh, usually at that point, I try to make make some rounds and Mm -hmm. try to just check in on everyone to make sure that everything's going okay. What, like, if, so with respect to like kind of satisfying sponsors... If a sponsor had their way, like once they signed the contract and now it's the tournament um, has begun, what would they ideally, what is their ideal wish list? Like, what do they want? I think they would want um, like Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal to move into their suite. (laughs) Pretty much, right? (laughs) Something like that. Like they're always looking for access to players. That's very important. Um, And that's an important thing to kind of point out to people because, you know, to the extent when we talk about you know, uh, the, the, the tennis players obviously and what they do on court and then they do kind of their prep off the court, whether it's practicing and things like that. Um, and we talk about what they have to do to support a tournament, Mm. right? This is what we're talking about, right? This is like satisfying the sponsors. They finish, they finish a match, they do all their press obligations and then they, they go with, you know, you or with the WTA comms person or whoever it is up to a suite and and there there's still there's all these other things that they 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 do in support of the tournament yes yeah so like um you know so in those situations where these these sponsors yeah they want you know they want the access they want they want all of these players i mean have you uh i mean are there other things that they want outside of that i mean that seems like not that that's an easy thing to Mm. deliver at all because it's not i know that (laughs) but but outside of that like is there like what do they want um, I think in general, like usually the, the benefits are very concrete. So mm. there's usually no doubt about, you know, how many things uh, they will receive and what, you know, nothing that happens during the tournament should be a surprise. You know, this has all been planned and arranged far in advance. Um, you know, there are just, you know, some minor things here or there, but I think um, in general, they all know what to expect when the time comes. Yeah. Has that changed over time? Because Again, uh, this is kind of, you know, when I was in Wuhan, I was very much using my experience in Beijing as kind of a, a, a gauge. Same with like Shanghai. And Shanghai has obviously been the longest running tournament in China, then in terms of the big tournaments, then China Open, mm-hmm. and then uh, the Wuhan Open. And you see the difference. You know, you're, you're in Wuhan and you know that it's the second year of that tournament. And expectations can sometimes be at the very beginning uh, a little out there. You know, in terms of what sponsors want, in terms of what tournaments want, because they think that they're they can get it, and you know, it's it's just a learning process. But have you? I mean, in your five years at the China Open, how have you seen that kind of evolve, if at all? Like, do you feel like the sponsors are, um, and not just the sponsors, but the people who work at the tournament as well, like more sophisticated now than they were like five years ago? I think it's definitely improved quite rapidly. you know, previously, perhaps most people were only aware of Lina, mm-hmm. um, but but now they're looking for Sharapova, they're looking for um, Kvitova, they're looking for uh, players. You know, not just inside the top five. They're they're getting more familiar with tennis. Um, one thing I always like to tell people is, you know, for me, my first memories of tennis were. 
watching Jimmy Connors make that great one to the semis, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Sampras and Agassi, uh, Celis Capriati in that, that famous semifinal match at the U.S. Open. Those memories, to me, are, are what f- sort of form the foundation of my tennis knowledge. For most of the people at the China Open, it is maybe Lina at the Beijing Olympics, mm-hmm. or it's Lina winning the French Open, mm-hmm. and that was really not that long ago. Right. So you have to remember that for most people, you know, tennis is something that we grew up with, or at least we would always see it in the news, or at least on Sports Center. You're conscious of it. You're conscious of it, yeah. So perhaps even the average person, average um, American, for example, is aware of it might be aware of a few names, but in China, it's still quite new. It's still quite new. So um, one thing we sometimes need to remind our, our spectators that we sometimes don't know who is going to play each other. You know, um, there was one time when um, somebody asked me, uh, when are uh, Serena and Maria going to play? And I said, <laughs> I, probably in the final, but I, I don't know. Like, yeah. uh, you know, they they need to play other players before they get to the final. And um, their reply was, oh, it just, just didn't, just didn't realize right. how it, how it works. Yeah. So um, I think every year we try to, to just get people more familiar with the game, just get more exposure. It's a lot about uh, education. Yeah. And, and although the, the China Open is, is the largest tennis event in Asia, it's, it's only in its 12th year. This year right. is the 12th year. So that's still not a long history compared to the Grand Slams. So it's it's hard to um, compare our event to to theirs when when they already have a long history and we are still building our history. Right. Like so, this year for the first time we put in the player entrance when they go on court we put like a wall of champions. So every year is a picture of whoever won and uh, it, like that's what we're that's one of our goals is to just kind of kind of create this history so that we can be on par with those other events. And so, you know, maybe 20 years from now, they can look back at, at like the history of the event and how it developed. So it's just hard when it's almost like we're on two different tracks, you know, but unfortunately it's at the same time, right? but just completely different. I mean, it's tough because you have a situation where, you know, there's the resources are there, the facilities are there, the players are there. But regardless of all of that, like you can't buy the hit, you can't buy history. Mm. History just has to be built right from a gra- yeah. from a gra- from ground zero, and there has to be patience. And you know, year by year, it grows and it builds. And if you do it the right way, but like, yeah, I mean, it's such a good point. I mean, I, I guess I'd never thought about it before. Like, what Wimbledon must have looked like in year two, exactly, right? Or like, you know, what the what U.S. Open at, at Forest Hills looked like in like the fourth year. Exactly. And that's really what we're talking about here in a lot of ways. And yeah, if everybody, I was walking up and down, um, you know, the media centers and all the player areas and everything is like under the main stadium uh, at the China Open. And and there's all these photos, like these great photos that are on the walls of these like very cool moments uh, that took place. I presume all at the China Open or at least in China. Yeah, they're all China Open, All at the China Open. So it was funny because normally, like, when you see those, um, I, I'm literally not just thinking about this now, but normally when you see those sorts of, like, walls of photos at other tournaments, that invariably there will be, like, a moment that either you don't personally remember or you're aware like, that it happened before, you know, you really were into tennis or whatever. Mm. And I was, like, walking, I was like, oh, no, I remember every single one of these. Like, mm. these are, you know, like, I remember this and that and this and that. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's new. 
it's new and, and it seems like it's a it's a new thing for for people to get into yeah china is still a developing country and we are developing right along with it so yeah. you know that those kind of things take take time but um i think when you go to the other bigger tournaments you sort of can just see the history right in front of you or you can see the tradition like when i was at wimbledon for the first time this year you can just sort of sense it and mm-hmm. it's just all around you so for us like that it we're trying to build that but it's not something you can just easily manufacture right. it has to come it has to come from substance and right. so it has to come from somewhere so you know we're only in the 12th year so i think um we're just sort of getting there on the way but and and we're trying to improve every year but it's still going to take some time yeah that's totally understandable. I mean, like, so when I walk around the grounds at the China Open, it was the same in Wuhan, um, and it's the same in Shanghai. Most of the fans are fairly young. They they almost all look like college age or fresh out of college or mid-20s, late-20s. Um, so being a tennis fan in China, how does that work? Like, technically, you can't be on Twitter, uh, but, like, how do you watch things? Like, for example, like, what is the, 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 the TV situation like for tennis in China? Sure. So there's um, CCTV5, the main sports channel, which, you know, basically over 800 million people receive that into their homes. It's a good number. Yes. So, <laughs> so and they will cover major matches, um, usually the finals of all the Grand Slams. Thankfully for, for us, they are the host broadcasters, so CCTV will show several hours of coverage per day of, of the China Open matches. There's also CCTV golf and tennis. Mm. So um, self-explanatory, but they show <laughs> golf and tennis. And so that's just depending on where they are. So, for example, they they might show um, some matches from Indian Wells. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the time difference can be a bit difficult. Yeah. Um, so usually Australian Open is, is quite compatible for the time zone. Um but French Open and Wimbledon are a little bit more difficult mm. for, for viewership. But they are covered. And uh, I think um, with Lena winning the French Open several years ago and then the Australian Open, uh, definitely more and more people are tuning in to watch um, and, also to, and also wanting to play. That's yeah. the big thing. So not just watching, but also playing, participating. And then uh, now when they come to the China Open... Uh, being a tennis fan, they can actually experience it mm-hmm. and uh, also, you know, just get a feeling for what it's like to actually watch tennis live. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, we always say this about tournaments, that every tournament kind of um, is a, absorbs and then expels the culture within the city that, it, that mm. it's in. You know, like Indian Wells is very much the picturesque uh, resort uh, town that surrounds it. I yeah. mean, that is very much that city. Rome is absolute chaos um, and craziness, and that is Rome, the city, and the tournament. They're the exact same thing. Mm. So, with respect to, to to tennis in China, and maybe specifically to the China Open, one of the things that I've always kind of wondered is obviously, like tennis is a very it's a it's a Western sport. Um, we're coming into China, we're creating these tournaments, the players are westernized, whatever. But the one thing that you do have control, not control over, but um, the soul of the tournament often comes from fans. Mm. And what is the fan, the fans of each, uh, how the fans are in each city, I guess, for each tournament. So one thing that would always really, I think when I think about it, would bum me out with respect to tennis in China is if all the Chinese fans just basically acted 
like Western, like basically it was just like a, a really, it was like a typical tournament just with Chinese people everywhere, mm. you know, kind of like I would want there to be kind of Chinese fingerprints mm. on the tournament um, in some way, shape or form. And I'm curious to know, like if you have any idea at all, what you think that those things are like, what is the culture of Chinese tennis fandom? Like what, and, and is it different? Uh, I know at the venue, we try to create a very, like, festive environment. So, like, in Chinese, we say, like, now, mm-hmm. meaning, like, very lively. So, like, the outside area is very, uh, almost like a market mm-hmm. or almost like a fair or festival. So, like, that's that's very Beijing, you know, to, and so people just walking back and forth and just, like, all all different kind of stalls and booths and stuff. And then with the fans, um, I think Chinese fans are very passionate about their players, but also super supportive. You know, Mm -hmm. they just support really good play. Yeah, exactly. You always see that. It's like, especially so long as no Chinese players playing, like so long as it's a good play, they're like, like the stadium erupts. It's not about who won the point or whatever, which is actually quite refreshing. Yeah, or like if a player is down for love and then they get on the board for one, there'll be a huge ovation just because they just want to support. It's always coming from a place of, of, of good intentions mm-hmm. for sure. And so, um, certain players, I think they feel, uh, very passionate about, especially a uh, players like, uh, Ivanovic, for example, Yelena Yankovic is quite popular. <laughs> Svetlana Kuznetsova is also quite huh. popular. Um, there are just certain players that um, Chinese fans really respond to, at least from what I've seen. Um, so they always seem to to get a lot of cheers, uh, and especially I know when, when I'm watching some of the matches and um, somebody makes an unforced error, people will say, like, oh, yeah, because they just feel bad. Like they just wanted the ball to go in so yeah. badly. <laughs> so. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone did. Everyone wants that ball to go in. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's it's a very refreshing way to watch them because you're just so used to when I go to tournaments like in Europe or America or even Australia like people go in and they have their horse right like they sit down and they're like I'm gonna be rooting for this guy or this girl because of the following reasons because of the flag next to their name because I'm just a fan because they're lower ranked sometimes like things like that and you just don't really get the sense of that here it's just like when there's a good play like they're just like really happy to have seen like quality tennis just like I don't know. It's refreshing in a way. Sure. When there's a long rally, yeah, definitely. And people will even like ooh and ah and gasp in the middle of points just because they're so into it. They're so passionate. They just want to see what's going to happen. So when a ball, you know, paints the line, but the other player gets it, you know, <laughs> just they'll have a gasp or some kind of audible sound will, <laughs> will be produced because they just want to see it's exciting it's it's really a dynamic situation and i know uh, i think a, a few years ago when lena played maria sharapova in the semifinal mm. that that atmosphere was was really crazy was that like the craziest that you've seen that was at the tournament yeah that was really amazing because it was packed totally packed and, and the main stadium holds fifteen thousand people so it was Practically full, yeah. Practically full, packed, and then just so loud and uh, just hanging on to every point. And uh, I think that's what makes the China Open so exciting, and why the fans like coming is because it, it's just a chance to see real professionals do what they're best at. I mean, do you remember? I mean, obviously, because now you work within tennis, so mm. 
this is always going to how we all came to be tennis fans and how we came to love or what we think of as like the ideal tournament or whatever. It's all it's all in our DNA. It's all in our experience. So like, do you remember the first tournament tennis tournament that you went to and, and what that experience was like? Yes, my first one was the was um, a local tennis tournament um, held. Uh, uh, in Mercer County Park in, in New Jersey and that tournament has a lot of amateur players and I remember watching it and thinking oh everybody's so good you know <laughs> and that's the thing about tennis is like there's so many levels of good yeah so I like for me when I was younger I thought that was so, like so amazing and then but the atmosphere was so great um because, okay, it's not the U.S. Open, but at the same time, like, there are different matches going on at different courts, and these are not, you know, professionals per se, but just seeing what people are capable of on a tennis court was inspiring, and then mm-hmm. also exciting to to check out the different scores on the different courts, and just the, the whole atmosphere. I love the thing about tennis programs I love the most is just being able to check out a match on this court and then there's doubles over here Mm -hmm. and then there's a a famous player on the main court the tennis smorgasbord yeah yeah it's just really exciting and checking out the schedule and and seeing what's going on in each court like that's that's really exciting I think other sports don't really have that Mm -hmm. you know you're not you have the singular event and everybody is around that yeah 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 and I think you know, um, one of the things, uh, when I finally went to the U.S. Open for the first time when I was young, um, just seeing the scoreboard and saying, oh, we've got to go right now to see what's <laughs> going to happen there. Like, that kind of excitement. So I think um, that's, to me, what what brought what brings out the excitement for me to go to a tennis tournament. I mean, how, now being in tennis, this happens to a lot of people who flip the side and they start working in it, and, and sometimes the, the passion or the the uh, love of the game because it's now a job mm-hmm. uh, starts to wane a little bit. Do you feel like like being in tennis has made you more of a tennis fan, less of a tennis fan? Like, cause you to see it differently. Like, what do you? How do you? How do you see that? Oh, life? sure, for sure. And, and now that you, now that I work in tennis, it's really hard to watch a tennis match at a different tournament. And like, and, and not think about like, oh, look at look at how they do their backboard, yeah. or like, oh, look at the, oh, that's interesting where they've where they've placed the sideboards, yeah. and oh, I, I see the, the different colors they use for the court surface. It's really hard to just sort of <laughs> look at the match just because you're so used to looking for those details on. Because um, that's your job. You're trying the to be analytical. Open. It's the same thing for I think writers. Like it's very difficult for me to like just sit there and watch a match and not think of like. Wait, well, on that last point though, was that a backhand or a forehand she missed into the net, or what was the what was the score? This break point or that break point, or oh, I think this match is going to turn. You know, like you, you just can't turn it off, like the way that right. you're trained to treat it, like for your job. Yeah, for sure. But it's it's also definitely made me appreciate all the hard work that goes into all these events, and you know, perhaps spectators don't even notice. Mm-hmm. what it is but like but there has been so many meetings about <laughs> discussing whatever it is and there's been many planning sessions about what it is and and should it be this way should it be that way all of those things take hours and days and perhaps even months to decide and perhaps the spectators might just like walk by right <laughs> walk by the location of the fountain or they might not notice the exact placement of everything but that has been carefully thought out and um planned so that you don't notice it. Right. So I think um, it's given me a, a greater appreciation for everything that 
all the people who work behind the scenes do for tennis. So, you know, when I go to tournaments now, I'm I'm especially appreciative of, of the small things because I just didn't realize before. Right. When well, you, you know how much work goes into that little small thing. Yeah, and I know for me... Um, you know, uh, for example, um, I take care of uh, IBM as one of our sponsors and just noticing where the wires go and how things are connected. Like, I just did not think <laughs> of that before. But, you know, when you are responsible for getting things connected and making sure they work, you start to look at other tournaments and say, like, how did that LED get <laughs> powered? Like, let me look for the cord. You just can't help it because yep. you're just thinking, you're just, that's what you know, so you can't help but look at other tournaments and think, oh, oh, oh that's a really interesting way how they did that. <laughs> that is very cool. But at that saying, you know, I, I also tried my best to play as, as tennis as much as possible, mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it's also inspiring to be around those kind of players. And so, I mean, I just play as an amateur, but still it's, it's so great to see, see those players come to the tournament and see them in person and, yeah. and they do you, are, do, really... do you get starstruck at all? No, because I'm, well, I'm not the type of person that is, is into like hero worship. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely admire their skills, but you know, they are just people and, and part of, the... even if you had to escort Yulia Putinseva up to like the IBM booth, you wouldn't be completely no, I... flabbergasted by being around such genius. I would be fine uh, <laughs> because I, I think it's really important, um, for me personally, I try to really respect uh, what the players do, and it's not my job to interfere and right. to get an autograph or to bother them. Like they're definitely here to perform well, and we definitely don't want anybody, uh, any of the employees, to kind of neg- negatively impact their performance. So, when we do the meet and greets or when we do player activities, you know, my responsibility is just to make sure they get there safely, mm-hmm. um, that everything goes really well, really smoothly. So I do have a, a slight reputation during the player activities of, of taking more control mm-hmm. just because I want to ensure that the player has a good experience. Yeah. We want the players to come back to the China Open um, and not because they have to because it's a mandatory event for the WTA because they actually want to and that they actually have a good time um, because it. I know how players will often talk with each other and so you know if there's something negative that happens it can kind of spread and and we don't want that we want the players to have a great time here i know china can be a difficult place at times but i think it's just because of maybe a lack of understanding and so i think if there's better communication and um if there's better organization then there won't be any of these kind of issues and i think once players can sort of look look past that they can see like what what a great what a great place it is yeah and i I do get the sense that over time they have been you know like the like the first time yeah maybe it's jarring the second time okay it's still kind of jarring but i kind of knew what to expect because i was here the first time and then my third or fourth time you know they kind of are like yeah i mean it's it's china i know what to expect and you know once you it, it does take a paradigm shift you know mentally to to kind of um, appreciate that. What I mean, the, the selling point that I always make to my friends, my journalist friends, uh, who, who come over to China is, you know, it's different and that's a good thing. You know, like yeah. you, you don't want, you know, most of the time, I mean, I travel a lot, um, all over the world. Most of the times by the time that I land and I'm out of the airport, it just feels like I'm in either America or, you know, or Europe. They just don't speak English. 
you know, but everything else is like the same. Like there, it doesn't feel different. Whereas like whenever I go to China, I get really excited about the trip simply because it feels different. It feels yeah. like a new thing. And it, and therefore it kind of like puts you into like a different, like tourist mindset. Like you're mm-hmm. actually like a straight up tourist. So like you're, you're in there, you're trying to figure out what's going on. You're experimenting and it's exciting in that way. Yeah, there's a phrase we often say here, which is like TIC, this is China, because it's just when things are like, oh, why can't, um, like, for example, oh, why is this beer warm? It's like, okay, this is China, so a lot of people will drink beer warm sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it's not that it's wrong, it's just like that's the way things are done here. Yep. So, you know, you just have to specifically ask for a cold beer sometimes, mm-hmm. because you'll sometimes you'll just be served a warm beer yeah no I got that in Wuhan I called down for room service and asked for a beer and she was so helpful and she was speaking English and she's like okay so you ordered one beer for room blah 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 and do you want it warm or cold and I was like cold (laughs) you know like like I was like I was taken aback by that question but then I remembered yeah like when I would go uh, visit relatives in Vietnam it was a lot of like warm beer over ice like and my father drank beer that way when I was growing up yeah it's just you know, now when I look back on it, I'm like, that's, why would you do that? Like, especially when I buy, like, fancy craft beer and he, like, drops ice cubes in it. I'm like, why? Why are you <laughs> sure. doing that? But that's how they like it. And that's sure. okay. It's, it doesn't doesn't hurt anybody. Sure. And, 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 and you know, um, Chinese civilization is 5,000 years old. It, yeah. it, it And it developed, um, you know, parallel to Western cultures. So it's, it's different. But, um, you know... I think still just as just as amazing and just as wonderful. Yeah, so, just as robust and dynamic. That's yeah, for sure. exactly. So although the ways might be different, uh, I think it doesn't mean they're wrong. Um, and I, <laughs> it, but you know, living here for for as long as I have, though, it's become sort of very natural to me. So right. it doesn't feel so jarring. But I can imagine coming for the first time. Like for me, it's no big deal to be on a packed subway. I. I used to have personal space, but I, I don't I don't have it anymore. But it doesn't bother me, like honestly, right. it, and and um, just little things like that. Yeah, no, I can see that. So closing it out, if you were, I'm hoping that we have pitched a, a good enough case to get people to to come hop on a plane and and come to China and see what it's all about. So with respect to Beijing or really anywhere, like what are kind of the tips or the things that people should see, tips that you would want to impart on people before they step off a plane <laughs> in China, whatever it is, just kind of like if, if someone's coming to China for the first time, what would you want them to know? Well, I would highly suggest actually coming to the China Open. I And I don't even say that as, as an employee because the first time I came to the China Open was as a spectator mm. before I even started working. And I had a great time because the China Open takes place during the October national holiday. It's China's National Day. Um, so from October 1st, uh, this year it's from October 1st to October 7th. So it's uh, holiday week. Um, it's the, probably the best time of the year in mm-hmm. Beijing where it's not really hot because Beijing has hosted the Summer Olympics. <laughs> and it's also not cold yet because Beijing will also hold the Winter Olympics. Oh, China. Oh, Beijing. Yeah, this is China. Bless it. So, this is China. <laughs> Yeah, so um, it's actually a great time of year, and I think when you come here, I think you've definitely got to go to the Great Wall, of course. And I got I a lot of good tips from Pete before I by, before I went up there with Carol. It's a lot steeper than people think. No kidding. 
My calves still hurt. Like today, this morning I woke up and my back was sore. And then when I hopped out of bed, I almost fell down because my calves were like just completely It's sick. always the calves. Yeah. It's, it's the actually calves. the calves. Yeah. Oh, brutal. Dude, that definitely happened to me the first few times. Like it, it's very, very steep. A lot of steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but you I, were right though because Pete told me, you know, if you do walk it, you will feel a sense of accomplishment when you get up there. And I was like, that sounds kind of like a bunch of hippie hooky. Like, you know, like just like hoopla. But sure enough, like Carol and I bitched and moaned about it the entire time going up. And then once we reached the top of the wa- the, the first watchtower, we were like, this is wonderful. And nobody was there because everybody takes the, the, the cable car. No one actually does the walk. So we were up there all by ourselves and it was really nice. Yeah, I find it very uh, fulfilling uh, each time I go, actually, even mm-hmm. though I've, I've been several times. It still feels just as great as the first time just because you, you climb to the top and then you're going up these very, very steep steps. Um, and, you know, before there were no guardrails. So just imagine, yeah. you know, doing that. Oh, just I, I can't even imagine. But, yeah. but then once you climb higher and higher, then you can look back, mm-hmm. see where you've come from. It's an, it, Exactly. We kept doing that. As we were walking up the steps, we would like look up and we'd get really annoyed. Like when we'd come around the corner, we're like, oh, Carol, there's another set of steps. But then we would just turn around and look behind us. We're like, dude, we just did all that. Yeah. That's pretty great. I mean, people people built that. Yeah. That, that's, Those that's are hands a great thing. and that sweat. Totally. Um, I think the Forbidden City is also great. I mean, uh, just, it's in the center of Beijing and uh, it's aligned on a axis. So mm-hmm. um, north to south. And then actually if you, you know, happen to walk, I'm not suggesting you should, but if you walk from straight north, you would go through the Drum and Bell Tower, but then you would also go straight through the Olympic Park and reach the China Open venue, because it's all on a north-south axis. In other words, from the China Open, if we just go down the south axis, then you would hit the Forbidden City. Yeah, you might have to walk for a few hours, but but it is uh, north-south aligned. So... Yeah, I think the Forbidden City is great because you can really see what what it was like to live during uh, China's dynasties and the fact that we're able to access that area now. It was called the Forbidden City because it just wasn't for commoners. Everybody yeah. lived outside. Um, I think, uh, actually, I also recommend going to the Summer Palace, which mm-hmm. is where um, emperors used to vacation and and so they designed it to be like a Suzhou Gardens, mm-hmm. which it, Suzhou is a city in the south of China that has these like canals and um, small bridges. And it's a, a great place, great lake and uh, really nice on a, on a summer day. Also, the old summer palace is great because it, it was actually destroyed by foreigners, but it's ruins. <laughs> but like uh, they left the ruins completely intact. So it's it's uh, also very interesting to to see what what happened there. Yeah, I mean, I think last year, I meant to go to Tiananmen Square. Mm-hmm. I had grand plans to do that. I got there. I seemed to have turned the wrong way. And I think I went the, the other way mm-hmm. uh, across the street. But anyways, like, I took, like, a selfie, like, with my GoPro. Yeah. Like, in front of the thing that I was at. Yes. But, like, and being, and I was texting my friend of mine, and I was like, I have no idea. Like, I can't find Tiananmen Square and they're like literally you can't not find Tiananmen Square if like you're near it it's massive like and I was like I don't know I don't think that I'm here so I just have one photo of Tiananmen Square behind me unbeknownst to me I didn't realize <laughs> that it was Tiananmen Square and yeah. I'd gone through like this yeah like all the the big thing of the big photo fo- the big painting of Mao yep. through the thing and uh ended up I think at the s- at some 
I don't know. I don't know what exactly I saw. It was wonderful, <laughs> though. Um, but yeah, no. China's pretty nifty. Yeah, and I think all those things are more like uh, old China. Um, you could also go into the hutong areas and, and just, just walk around. Love the hutongs. Yeah, they're really great. I mean, they have a lot of character, and then nowadays they have a lot of um, just like small cafes and just uh, really relaxing to... Uh, go down uh, if you're renting a bike for example I would highly recommend that because bike, mm. biking around Beijing is I think one of my favorite things to do you actually have bike lanes yeah that's a massive thing because not everywhere is there are there bike lanes and also Beijing is really really flat so yes. you're just biking flatly the whole time so it's just really just relaxing and, and on a nice uh, summer day for example just going on a bike ride I, I, I think it's fantastic love it have you heard of a bar in Beijing that has archery. Yes. What's it called? I don't know the name, but okay. I, I know you can do it. And that's the thing about Beijing is there's al- there's always these weird things. Like I'm so excited. There's a retro gaming bar where you can play um, like Nintendo, Super Nintendo games. There's that kind of bar. Love. There, there are, <laughs> there's one bar called um, Hidden House where um, when you enter you need to find the button to open the <laughs> hidden house. Uh, so it's actually a moving bookshelf. Okay. Or like a bookcase. I and then say. behind that is like is the, the bar? actual bar where you can sit. That's amazing. Stuff. It's like a coded speakeasy. Yeah. So there's just always these really interesting places uh, in, in Beijing. It's got so it's got so much character. Yeah. There's soul here and there's like it's like a kind of a weird fusion of like I don't know, like San Francisco and Berlin and like obviously aspects of, of, of just straight up Beijing. But there's 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 a weird Berlinish character about Beijing where like kind of anything goes. Yeah. You know, which is kind of what Beijing's all or what Berlin's all about. But I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's got a lot of old and it's got a ton of new at the same mm-hmm. time. So. So I think um, one one great thing about Beijing is it is just always changing. And, you know, each time, even when I travel outside the country and come back or I go go home, visit my family, I come back, it's still, there are still new things that yeah. have happened since I've left. Yeah. That's a pretty dynamic city. <laughs> For sure. There, there was one time where I wanted to go to a store and then I hadn't been there in a month and then I biked past and it was gone. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know where it went, but it was gone. Yep. It, it, you know, that explains why the people are go-getters. <laughs> they are, you know, they come at you. They're no nonsense because in a, it's in a, you know, a country of whatever, 1.2 billion and a city like Beijing. It's, hey, Beijing, Beijing has 22 million people. So it's a lot there's, of people. People are doing something all the time. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's that's what makes it so exciting. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Pete, for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, yeah, come to the China Open, you guys. It's a really good tournament. Do it. (laughs) 